Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode contains strong language and references to domestic abuse and other violence. Listener discretion is advised. Lori Grinker grew up in New York City and in the early 1980s went to college at Parsons School of Design at the New School. I ended up taking a photojournalism class and we had to find a story to do and try to get it published by the end of the semester. In exchange for getting into dope seminars for free, Lori would sometimes take photos of the outside guests the school brought in to lead those classes, which is how she first met a boxing manager named Jim Jacobs, who worked with a famous trainer named Customato. He started to tell the stories, and it was like this old man and these there were these young kids boxing, living at the house with Customato. And I thought, oh, that's a great story. I would love to go upstate to Catskill, New York, and photograph these kids. So, on weekends... Lori started making the three-hour trip up to Catskill and staying at Cuss's big white house overlooking the Hudson River. And it was like this old man and these kids. It was a very small gym. It, it was very small town, low-keyed, and people would just sit around and watch. There were several kids training there. Some who were having trouble at home, some who just lived in the area, uh, mostly poor. Like Billy Ham was this nine-year-old Caucasian kid who I wanted to follow for my class project. He lived in a trailer. Um, he would come there on weekends. So these kids stayed at the house on weekends and would train in the gym with Cuss. For a lot of these kids, Cuss and his partner Camille were like a second set of parents, or sometimes the only set of parents. Then Camille would make these meals. The meals were always like Thanksgiving. And we'd all sit around the table, and the kid's job was to clean up. And she was very strict, and they were very, very well-behaved. What brought them all together was boxing and cuss. This is cuss from a documentary explaining his approach. The physical part of boxing is so minor that most people would never believe it or accept it. Because, in my opinion, the mind and emotions are about 75% of boxing. I remember one of the first times I was at the gym and Cuss was sitting in a chair and all the kids were like around and Cuss is, you know, showing the different punches with his fist and demonstrating things. And, you know, they would just listen to his every word and hang on to it. A professional fighter has got to learn how to hit and not get hit at the same time be exciting. That's what professional boxing is about. You've got to be clever. You've got to be smart and not get hit. And when you're able to do this, you're a fighter. Lori would hang around, shoot some pictures, and get to know everyone's story. Slowly, I learned, you know, what each kid's background was. It was this girl. There was somebody named Frank who was a little older. It was this nine-year-old. It was this big kid, 13, 14-year-old Mike Tyson. At this point, Mike Tyson was just Mike a shy teenager from Brooklyn. 
and Lori didn't pay much attention to him. I didn't shift the focus to Mike at that time because to me, Mike was typical of a boxer. Cuss saw it a little differently. Cuss would always say, you know, you should focus on Mike. Mike's gonna be the next heavyweight champion. Mike had grown up hard in Brooklyn. By the time he was 13, he'd been arrested dozens of times and ended up at the Tryon School for Boys in his tiny town hours away from the city. Eventually, a counselor there hooked him up with Cuss. Cuss taught Mike everything about boxing. You know, how to think, how to train, what lessons he could learn from the best boxers of all time. I'm talking deep cuts like Ike Williams, Panama Al Brown, and Johnny Kilbane. I tell them that there's no reason why he can't be even greater than those people. Because if his interest allows, and his will and ambition and his dedication is great, this is very possible. And then he, if he has the drive, he becomes what he wants to become because he now he sees the possibility of doing it. He and Mike had a really special relationship. It was very much like father and son. In fact, after Mike's mother died in 1982, Cuss became his legal guardian. Cuss turned out to be right about Mike as a boxer. He won the gold medal in the Junior Olympics in 1981 and 82. There's the right hand. There's the left. Very, very strong boxer type. Very, very strong. The Golden Gloves in 1984 as a 17-year-old. Tyson is such a terrific puncher, he can paralyze you with those blows to the belly. Then, in 1985, Tyson turned pro. And very quickly was so much on people's radar that he was getting interviewed by Brian Gumble which was legit back then. There are a few things as exciting in sport as new talent that is clearly brilliant. These days, the man whose brilliance is clear to anyone who's seen him is named Michael Tyson. He's a 19-year-old heavyweight who's had 14 fights, won all 14 of them by knockout, 10 of those scored in the first round. Potentially, just how good can you be, Mike? Have you thought much about it? Well, you're always learning. I don't think anyone is invincible. Joe Lewis, perhaps the closest thing to invincible, but... Myself, I put in a lot of hours training, and I give it all I have. Tyson took care of business in the ring. Then outside it, he was taken care of by his trainer, Cuss, and by his two managers, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton. But then, on November 4th, 1985, Cuss D'Amato died. Through his grief, Tyson fought two fights that month. He threw a tremendous left hook and didn't go off balance. Then another two the next month. He not only knocked him down, but he absolutely carried him through the air. All of them victories. All of them knockouts. Doesn't look like he'll beat the count. The count is eight, nine, ten, and this one's over. But outside the ring, things started to change. After Cuss died, slowly you could see these people moving in who I really did observe looked like the shark slowly moving in. And the biggest, baddest shark circling in the water was Don King. I'm Panama Jackson, and from something else, this is Power, Don King. Today's episode, The Dream. My name is Doug Fisher. I'm editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine. The Ring Magazine is known as the Bible of Boxing, so it's the oldest boxing publication in America. Doug has been covering boxing since the mid-90s, 
but as a lifelong fan, he can still remember the way Mike Tyson took over the sport. He went from being like the hot, young, rising star in boxing to what boxing media and fans and boxing historians were already beginning to call an all-time great. Tyson won fight after fight. He had a combination of speed and raw power that no one had ever seen before. He looked unbeatable. They were already comparing him to Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali and, and Rocky Marciano. You know, he was that dominant and he was that exciting. After Cuss died, Mike still had a strong team around him. He was managed by these two guys, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, who had been with Mike since before he even turned pro. Jacobs, he was the more compassionate of that, that management duo. Caton was more of sort of the cold businessman, definitely not a, uh, a people person. Jacobs was more warm, more empathic. I think Tyson understood that Jacobs genuinely cared about him and not just his boxing career and the amount of money they could all make if it was managed correctly. To keep their young star focused on the game, Jacobs locked up a chunk of the millions that Tyson was already raking in. He set up an annuity that would pay out Tyson around 200,000 bucks a year and keep the rest of it safe. Boxing journalist Radio Rahim says their relationship went way beyond just money. They were his trusted protectors. They helped him have a lens through which to see this world that he was a huge force in, but not experienced enough to understand. As Mike did his thing and had more and more success, he started fighting better boxers. And remember, Don King had the heavyweight division on lock. So that meant more and more of Tyson's fights were against boxers Don had under contract. Don King was always around because he was a boxing promoter. So you would be at the fights and everybody was friendly. So everybody was a part of it. When Tyson won his first heavyweight title in 1986, who do you see in all the pictures? Don. You assume Don King has something to do with it. And he's absolutely taking credit for it. And there is the iconic photo of Don King rushing over to Mike Tyson and lifting him up after he's won a championship. It's not even his fighter. But if you're looking at that fight, well, these two have to be in business together. And Don King's so excited that Mike Tyson has won and he's lifting up a heavyweight off his feet. Well, surely that's got to be his fighter. Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton tried to be as careful as they could with Don. But if Tyson was really going to get anywhere as a boxer, they knew they had to work with him. I don't know that I would fault Cuss or Jacobs really for allowing Don to promote Mike Tyson fights because it did make the most sense. We can't pretend like Don King wasn't bringing more money to the table than any other promoter. Somebody bringing $20 million to the table and everybody else is only bringing five, well, your advisors uh, would be malpractice not to tell you to go with the guy who's going to earn you the most money. But Jacobs and Caton made sure that Tyson stayed a free agent, which wasn't great for Don. Because like everyone else, Don knew that Tyson was going to be huge. What he saw in Mike Tyson was like a bona fide superstar. Like the type of fighter like Ali, who tra not just transcended boxing, but transcended sports. By 1988, 21-year-old Mike Tyson was 33-0. and zero. 
and had secured the WBC, WBA, and IBF heavyweight championships. But then, in March of that year, his manager Jim Jacobs died, and Don made his move. If you have a shark on the periphery, but you feel like you can be a gatekeeper to the shenanigans and to the the fraud and the kind of scandal because you know what you're looking at, then yeah, you believe you can protect your fighter. The problem happens is, you know, when people die, (laughs) people fall out of the way. That's when really the hooks got sunk in. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. The funeral for Mike Tyson's manager, Jim Jacobs, was going to be held in Culver City, California. Don packed his bags and somehow got himself on the same flight out as Jacobs' widow and Mike Tyson. Don understands perception and the value of aligning yourself in a moment with someone who you may have a very peripheral or trivial relationship with, But knowing that people will perceive you as having been close to this person or having a relationship of trust with this person, that will get you in another door. At LAX, Don offered Tyson a ride to the hotel in a limo he had waiting. Tyson was down bad. In his memoir, Undisputed Truth, he writes, If Cuss was like a father to me, Jimmy was like a brother. And Don was out here doing everything he could think of to get a role like that for himself with Mike. Maybe the most telling moment of the whole funeral is Don King as a pallbearer. Because Jacobs and Don King were not close. They didn't have anywhere near the kind of relationship where you would think that Jacobs would want Don King carrying his casket on his final day above ground. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. That ain't even right. But it wasn't hard to figure out what Don was up to. Well, okay, this must mean that they were close to business dealings and whatever Jacobs was doing, he could trust Don to be doing it at least with him, if not for him. So now in Jacobs' absence, Don can more naturally step in and say that I will be fulfilling the role of Jacobs in a way that I don't think Jacobs would have ever put forward Don King to represent. Tyson did still have one member of his management team, Bill Caton. But Mike didn't have the same relationship with him that he'd had with Jim. And Lori Grinker says Tyson also had suspicions about Don. I remember standing in the hallway with him and he said, I'll never sign with Don King. He kept saying that over and over again. But yet it seemed that Don King was already trying to make his moves. Don started reaching out to Mike, you know, just to talk. Here's Doug Fisher. 
King is very good at connecting with African-American boxers who come out of poverty, folks who are from the ghetto, folks who, you know, had struggle, folks who maybe had a criminal background. You know, he could say, I've, I know where you've been. I come from the same background. He had that game and, and he was able to, to use it to his advantage. Don had a pretty good idea of how to get in Tyson's good graces. Don knows what a 20-something young black kid with some money wants to be seen as and who he wants to be seen with and what he wants to be doing when he's not draining every drip of sweat out of his body in the boxing gym. Don hooked Mike up with a Rolls Royce. Well, two actually, a limo and a convertible. And he was always ready for a night out on the town. If Tyson was going to a rap concert, King's like, let's roll together. We'll roll in my limo and I'll make sure you have everything and we'll have champagne and we'll have a whole crew and you invite all your friends, it's on me. Don King has access to celebrity. Everybody you've ever wanted to meet, I can put you in a room with. Don had promoted a tour for Michael Jackson a few years earlier, which got a little messy. We've got a whole separate episode about it coming later in this series if you want to dig in. But Don and Michael ended up on good enough terms that Don could take Tyson to an MJ concert and then bring him backstage to meet him. On one hand, all of this was just to impress Mike. But on the other, Don was pretty savvy about how making sure there were always a lot of cameras around to document their new relationship. King was was very much in the public eye with Mike Tyson. So while he's forging this relationship with Mike Tyson and trying to get him to sign the dotted line to an exclusive promotional contract, he's also in the tabloids with Tyson. And he's letting everybody else know, hey, Tyson's off limits. He's mine. If you're Bob Arum and you're thinking about getting in the Mike Tyson business, forget about it, because we're buddies. We were at the Public Enemy concert, not you. And in an already busy 1988, Mike had also married the actress Robin Givens in February. They let me photograph at their wedding reception, and it was pretty traditional. It was at Helmsley Hotel, and yeah, it was really fun. From the beginning, people were fascinated by this marriage of opposites. Mike was this boxer from the hood, and Robin was this private school-educated TV star. Shouts out to head of the class. Robin was very smart and very beautiful, very savvy, and Mike was madly in love. And she actually really seemed like she loved him, too. Lori says, from what she could tell, when Mike married Robin, he ended up getting Robin's mom in the deal, too. Ruth, Robin's mother, was always, always, always there. She was never not there. It was like she was running the show. And it wasn't just Givens and her mom who got added to Mike's life. So you, all these people were around. Suddenly Don King was there a lot. Suddenly Ruth Givens and Don King were buddies. After Customato when Jim Jacobs died, the only one left for Mike's original management team was Bill Caton. And at first, Ruth and Robin and Don, they all seemed to want the same thing, to help Mike get out of his deal with Caton. The way Robin told it, she was just trying to protect her husband. The Sports Illustrated article and some of the others, the tone is that suggests that you and your mother are opportunists and that you are meddling too much in Mike's career. Right. Um, That's absurd. First of all, Michael's wife. And not only that, but we're family. I mean, my mother has become Michael's mother. Um, an incident happened and we noticed a discrepancy with Michael's money. That's what sort of opened up everything. Lori says Mike seemed cool with that, too. He wasn't that fond of Bill Caton. And the dynamic between 
Mike and Bill and Mike and Jim was so different. When Robin and her mom looked over Mike's contracts with Caton, who was there to back them up? The suddenly ever-present Don King. For a while, Don hung back, letting Robin and her mom force Caton into first renegotiating his deal, then basically trying to tear the whole thing up. The way Don told it to Pat Sajak, the host of Wheel of Fortune, who somehow had his own talk show, breaking up with Caton was just something Mike wanted for himself. What's the story on this guy who's Mike's manager of record, or what, what's the man's name? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Now, don't, don't play like you No, his name, his name is Caton. All right. Bill Caton. Now, what's happening with that? Well, it's a problem Mike has terminated him as his manager, and this has to be adjudicated. Uh, but as of now, he's been terminated because he doesn't seem to respect Mike as a man. You know, he totally disregards him as though he doesn't exist. He can't make any decisions. And, uh, and it's just really, a, it's a very sad commentary. But while all this conflict was going on with Bill Caton, Lori says there was even bigger conflict between Robin and Mike. I did this photo shoot at the Catskill house. I think it was in the attic. And these were pictures that ended up on the cover of People and Sports Illustrated. And they were fighting between my doing the shots. Ultimately, Robin would allege that those arguments would escalate to Mike physically assaulting her. And Robin and Mike did an interview with Barbara Walters where Robin spoke very openly about how bad things had gotten. He's got a side to him that's scary. He, he gets out of control. Um, throwing, screaming. Does he hit you? He shakes, he pushes, he, um, he swings. There were times that it happened when I thought I, was, I could handle it, you know. And just recently, I've become afraid. I mean, very, very much afraid. In the first months of their marriage, Robin had taken charge of the finances. Suddenly, Don was in Mike's ear, telling him he better take back control over all of that. Mike had a bunch of bank and brokerage accounts that Robin had access to. Don got Mike in the car and drove him to each one in turn. He cut her out of Mike Tyson's business and had her taken off all the accounts so he could have control all on his own. There's a way this story got told back in the day, which was that Robin Givens was basically a gold digger out for Tyson's money. But like, come on, how was she gonna stick around when he treated her the way he did? For Don though, the chaos around Mike and Robin was kind of perfect. Robin and her mom helped Don move Bill Caton to the sidelines. And then Robin and Mike got divorced and no Robin meant no Ruth. Cuss was dead. Jim Jacobs was dead. And who did that leave as the one person 22-year-old Mike thought he could count on? Don King. I think the trust that Mike Tyson put into Don King, you know what I mean? That is the mistake of youth. Mike is trusting Don that he's managing their relationship fairly when we all know at this point that was couldn't be further from the truth. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organisation called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. By October of 1988, Mike Tyson had set up camp at Don King's mansion in Ohio. Radio Rahim says that it was around then that Don started making some big changes in Mike's life. Mike Tyson came along at a time when Don was skilled enough at being a promoter and tried and true enough at being a shyster that he could meld those two skill sets together and manipulate this incredible talent into becoming really Don King's dream. Doug Fisher says step one was firing the trainer Mike had been working with for six years, Kevin Rooney, and hiring Karen Snowell. Once Kevin Rooney was moved out, the trainer, Aaron Snowell, was a Don King guy, through and through. Step two, everybody else. The people around Mike Tyson, whether it's a, the manager or, you know, the advisor or the attorney, those are Don King people. With Bill Caton out of the way, Don let Mike bring in his very inexperienced buddy, Rory Holloway, to be a part of the team that managed him. As in... This guy who had no idea what he was doing was now going to be one of the people who negotiated with Don, which did not slip by the media. Don King is, is our teacher. You know what I mean? I don't know everything there is to know about boxing, but what I don't know, I'm learning from Don King, who's the best. Some contend that it is indeed Don King who is running this organization and that he has too much influence over the champion. What I do is tell him what, in my judgment, whether I think something is right for him or whether it's wrong for him, but I allow him the courtesy and the right to make the decision as to whether you want to pursue that course of action or not. Before long, Mike even purchased a house near Don's mansion in Ohio. Doug says Mike saw himself and Don in a way that he never could with Customato or Jim Jacobs. It's like, wow, this guy is a black dude who comes from the streets like me, who has a sordid past like I have, like, you know, hey, I mugged guys. This dude killed guys. And he did time. And, and look where he is now. In Mike's book, he describes the way Don would use their shared background to create this whole us versus them vibe. Quote, he was very smart in instilling in me the auspices that it was me and him against the world. Black man, white man. Black man, white man. He was always spouting some bullshit that the white motherfuckers were no good and that they were out to kill us all. I actually started believing some of his shit. I played into that stuff. End quote. Don made sure to put his new connection to Tyson very much in the public eye. Well, we're inseparable now. We've been together about four or five They showed up at events together. Did you have a chance to see the big fight last night? Well, Mike, I don't know. Did you see it? Yeah. I, I saw it. <laughs> they were in music videos. They did interviews together. You know what I mean? I love you, Mike. You love me, Mike? I love you. All right. <laughs> Dr. Joan Morgan is an author and culture critic now, but back then, she was just getting her start as a freelance journalist. She remembers watching as Mike got more and more famous and more and more free of anything or anyone holding him back. 
Mike Tyson was a god in in many ways, and he was one of the those athletes that bridged the space between athlete space and that kind of celebrity, but also hip hop. There was definitely a place for him in terms of like hip hop's increasing sort of glamour and you know we used to call that era the ghetto fabulous. And Mike fit really comfortably in both spaces. This is Lori Grinker. So you had Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson and Sly Stallone and Eddie Murphy and everybody. And Mike started going to all these parties. So suddenly he went from the shy boy and, you know, suddenly he's thrust into all of this. Limos and beautiful women on his arm and lots of gold jewelry. For a lot of Black folks watching this, this was a come up to celebrate. Mike was like that family member or neighborhood friend who was talented and who made it, who you rooted for. But you could just see how Mike was so young and so naive, and he got caught up in it all, and he loved it. But there was also the side of him that was just out in New York in clubs, you know, wildin'. Like, he used to have this... um, little favorite activity where he would pick a couple, right? And start to talk to the woman in the couple and sort of like dare the guy to like say anything. Like it's Tyson, right? You know, and if you did dare, he would just like knock you out. It was stuff like that that got Mike caught up in serious mess. His abuse of Robin Givens should have told us about the possible dangers ahead. There was a new assault charge, lawsuits, harassment claims. The violent behavior that had once seemed to be at least partly focused into the ring now spilled out everywhere. Here's Mike from his memoir again. My whole job was to hurt people. Jim and Bill tried to tone that down, but Don was with the program. So when I started hanging out with Don, boom, the whole public perception of me changed. Now I was a bad guy. Don did try to get Mike to see a psychologist, but Mike ran the guy off. Despite all the chaos, Mike still managed to win his next two fights. But by early 1990, things were heading off the rails. Mike was set to fight a so-so fighter named Buster Douglas in Tokyo, which Radio Raheem says Mike wasn't taking seriously. The story of the Buster Douglas fight has to start before the Buster Douglas fight. Mike had been trading gym time for some big-time partying. He came into the ring both out of shape and overweight. The fight that Mike Tyson was having internally, first of all, getting up and ready for world-class competition. The fight he was having professionally with his representation, looking out or the lack thereof for his best interest. The people around him helping him to focus on what was most important, which was winning fights. At this point, he's a grown man and should be held responsible and accountable for where he prioritizes his decisions. And he was clearly not prioritizing boxing over everything else. Don King had achieved his dream with Tyson. This hugely famous, like, mad talented boxer who could be the headliner of an endless string of multi-million dollar fights. And unlike with Muhammad Ali, Don finally got his exclusive contract. But somewhere, he had missed something about how to make that dream last. In the eighth round, Tyson finally managed to connect with Douglas. And there's a right hand uppercut and down goes Douglas. As suddenly as that. 
Can he beat the count? He got a little overconfident. But Douglas didn't stay down. And when Mike tried to dig deep, there was nothing left. Mike Tyson did not have that second gear that night because he hadn't prepared to win at all costs. Don King had found this generation's greatest fighter. He had convinced Tyson to sign on with him for a four-year contract. A boxer so invincible, he could hold on to the heavyweight championship for years. And then... Left hand lands by Tyson. Don just seemed to settle in to watch the show. Douglas comes back with a left and a right. Don had a genius for business. They are just trading shots. For connecting himself to talent. Solid right hand by Douglas. For grabbing the most attention. For making the most money. But that genius didn't seem to extend to whatever it was that Mike Tyson needed to succeed. I think you'd have to say this is the most trouble Mike Tyson has ever been in. Whatever Mike Tyson could have been, or should have been, to boxing fans and to Don King, the story went sideways there in the 10th round in Tokyo. Buster Douglas clocked Tyson with an uppercut, then a left cross, right cross. Tyson dropped like a brick and didn't get up. And for the first time in his professional career, Mike Tyson lost a fight. This makes Cinderella look like a sad story. What Buster Douglas has done here tonight. And Don's dream of just chilling and making bank while his unbeatable fighter dominated boxing for years, well, that dream looked like it had hit the mat just as hard as Tyson did. Let's go ahead and call it the biggest upset in the history of heavyweight championship fights. Next time on Power, Don King. Tyson was a hero. I mean, there were free Mike Tyson protests outside of the courtroom every single day. Many of the people carrying those placards were women. Don King's reputation took a hit. Tyson's reputation took a huge hit. Boxing took a huge hit. It had that kind of impact. Mike Tyson can't be Mike Tyson without somebody paying Don King. That is a hell of a wake-up call. That will make anybody take a look at the books. Remember, this episode doesn't finish here. If you want more, then join me for The Roundtable, the weekly power after show. Every week, me and some friends spend some time breaking down each episode, sharing our thoughts and asking questions. There's so much to unpack with this story. So pull up a chair and join us on The Roundtable. Unlock past and future episodes by visiting the Power Show page on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page. Subscribers will also get access to all episodes of Power completely ad-free. As always, thanks for listening. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was hosted by me, Panama Jackson. Our producer is Tiffany Walker. Associate producers are Kyra Asabe Bonsu and India Witkin. Our editor is Keith Romer. Mixing and sound design by Will Short at Spoke Media. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka and production management by Jennifer Mystery. Our consulting producer is Radio Rahim. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to Grant Irving and Steve Ackerman. <laughs>